Psalm 1, if you haven't turned there, go ahead and do that now. Keep it open on your lap because we'll be referring to it multiple times this morning. Well, the details are a little fuzzy, but I do recall this much. The event was held up in the Whittier Hills at the home of Judge Patterson. And the main course for that night was roast beef. Six roast beefs cooked in an outdoor brick oven. Uh, Those of us who were responsible for the event showed up that morning. Uh, We built a fire inside the brick oven waited for the wood to burn down into nice white hot coals, and then we placed each one of those wrapped roast beefs into the oven and shut the doors. Twelve hours later, (laughs) we pulled those uh, pieces of meat out, we laid them on the counter, we got a pair of scissors and we cut the strings that held them together, and then instantly, beautifully, and succulently, they just fell open. We had to do no ripping or tearing. They just opened up right in front of us. And like a well-cooked, slow-roasted piece of meat, Psalm 1 just flops open right before us, introducing to us three distinct persons. You have the blessed man there in verses 1 through 3, the wicked man in verses 4 and 5, and then the Lord in verse 6. And the question you need to answer this morning is this. Between the blessed man and the wicked man, which one are you? You're either one or the other. There is no third choice. This passage gives us no options, nor is there any place else in Scripture that does. In two of the Gospels, Matthew 10, verse 32, and Luke 12, 8 says, uh, Jesus says, you either acknowledge me before men or you don't. There's no third way. In Revelation chapter 3, the Lord says, there are only two kinds of persons, hot or cold. And those who fall in between, I find distasteful. There's no third way. A couple of weeks ago, Jackson pointed out that one of the purposes of the Psalms is to orient us to what is truly important. And this is truly important, that there is no third way. God views you as either blessed or wicked. So again, the question this morning is, which one are you? There are only two ways to live. And you may find the answer as we get to the end of the sermon this morning rather surprising. But before we set out to answer this question, we want to get our bearing on the psalm and that in relationship to the rest of the book. And the first thing we find is that Psalm 1 is the gateway to the Psalter. It's the introduction to the Psalms. And to begin, it introduces us to three main persons, the wicked man, or the blessed man, the wicked man, and the Lord. Persons to whom we're introduced here and then reintroduced time and again throughout the book. 
Then Psalm 1 introduces us to the emphases of the Psalter. Some Psalms emphasize wisdom, that is how we're supposed to live. Some Psalms emphasize law, that is what it is we're supposed to believe. Psalm 1 is classified as both, a wisdom psalm and a law or a Torah psalm. It tells us how to live. It also tells us what to believe, making it the perfect introduction to this book. Further, Psalm 1 democratizes the psalms. That is to say, uh, it makes them accessible to everybody, to you and to me. Um, In these chapters, there are poems and prayers and praises that are authored by some pretty lofty persons, Asaph, David, Solomon, the sons of Korah. But Psalm 1 invites us to receive their writings as our own. Their poems are our poems. Their praises are our praises. Their uh, prayers are our prayers. And then finally, Psalm 1 has traditionally been accepted as the introduction to the Psalter. In fact, in many medieval manuscripts, Psalm 1 has no numerical designation. It just stands there on its own. In fact, it's all rendered in red ink. As one scholar put it, the right way, to, the right way into such a book of songs must be itself a work of art. And so it is. So, in asking whether you're the blessed man or the wicked man, it's good to understand that as much as uh, this is the question for us today, it's really the question of the 149 succeeding psalms as well, and in a sense makes it the question for us this summer. Now, I just want to uh, do a, a quick sidebar here, um, because not only has Psalm 1 been viewed as the introduction to the Psalter, but it's uh, uh, meant to be read in tandem with Psalm number 2. And the reason is because there's no subtitle on Psalm 2, indicating that the two are a pair. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 both touch on two ways to live. Psalm 1 focuses on the blessed person and the wicked person. Psalm 2 focuses on the blessed kingdom of God and the wicked kingdoms of the earth. Uh, Pairing up psalms like that is true in Psalms 9 and 10 and 42 and 43. And I mention this because five weeks from today, Rob Price is going to be preaching on Psalm 2. So uh, you'll want to stand by for the sequel on this morning's message. Well, let's get into these introductions here. The first person, the person with the preferred placement and God's preeminent favor in this psalm is the blessed man. And there are three things in this psalm for which he is known. The first of which is arresting. It assaults our senses. Because notice that he is known for what he doesn't do. He, look at, look at verse one, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners, he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. No, no, no. He, he, he plays, the blessed man plays right into one of the main criticisms leveled at God's people today. 
Christians are better known for what they oppose, right, than what we support. Or to put it in uh, uh, terms of one of the popular lines uttered, th- uttered this past week, Christians are better, uh, Christians are not what this country is supposed to be about. They're the people of no. And yet, these are the words with which God opens the Psalter. And this is the person whom he blesses. Notice there the, the subtle progression of sin from which the blessed man is saved by saying no. First he's saved from walking where he shouldn't be walking, then standing among those uh, with whom he shouldn't be standing, and then finally sitting in their midst. That, that's the deadly trajectory of sin. Its attractiveness grabs one's attention, then arrests one's interests, and then finally captures and paralyzes his heart, which is the control center for his whole person. Follows a, a, a subtle pattern that can also be explained like this. I've heard it said, sin is like a kitten, which you can hold in your lap, that grows into a lion that finally devours you. When we were living in suburban Chicago, the church at which I worked held a men's retreat. And I was asked to room with a visiting pastor at that retreat, which I gladly did. And I'll always remember the morning before the final session. And I walked into the room to find my roommate sitting on the edge of his bed. And he said to me, right now, an elder is reading my resignation letter to my congregation. And he went on to tell me about uh, his assistant uh, with whom he worked, with whom he had a working relationship at first, and then an emotional relationship, and finally an adulterous relationship, which turned his ministry and his life upside down. And as I stood there and listened to this, of course, my heart sank, and and he was uh, undone. And I remember the last thing he said, because he sat there on the edge of the bed, and he had uh, his two fingers extended, and he began tapping his head like this, and he said, it all started right here. It all started right here. And again, it all started right here. What was conceived as an idle fantasy gave birth to an ironclad fixation that grew into something that took over his life and turned it into something that heretofore he could not have even imagined. And this is why the one who says no, no, is blessed, is happy, is joyful, is content. And why the ones who associate themselves with him feel safe and secure. So the first thing for which the blessed man is known is what he doesn't do. But he is also known for what he 
does do. Take a look there at verse 2. He resists sin by relying on God's word. And he relies on God's word by delighting in it. Maybe this morning you do not delight in the Lord because you don't delight in his word. You have no affection for God. You have no feeling toward God. You have no love for God because you have no love, feeling, or affection for his word. I was reminded this past week of a trip I took to Guatemala and the beautiful compound on which we stayed and the active dog who lived on it. And uh, one day as we were heading up to lunch, I remember kneeling down in the long grass and beginning to pet this dog next to his 10-year-old master. And I I said to the boy, I said, uh, what a great life your dog has here. Just look at all of this room. And without missing a beat, that guy says to me, well, yeah, except all he thinks about is getting out. And I've always remembered that. Those words have have never escaped me as they provoked me to ask, what do I think about? What do I always think about? What what do I delight in? The safety and provision of God's life-giving law or the delectable dangers that lie outside? It all begins right here. So the blessed man chooses the safety of God's law. He delights in God's word. And he also meditates on it. We see that also there in the verse. He meditates on God's word. What what does that mean? Well, it means he does more than just run his eyeballs across the words. He actually sits and thinks about it. He, He considers what it is he's reading. He contemplates it. He reflects on it. He ruminates. He ponders. He ponders. That's one of my wife's words right now. I've been pondering something lately, which means she's been thinking very deeply about it. I've been reading the book of Luke in the morning, and there on the front end of Luke, just a week or two ago, I was reminded of Mary. Uh, on more than one occasion, pondering God's word in relationship to the events of Jesus' life. Remember that? She's working it through. Meditation means engaging with the Scripture. You and I can have a conversation after this morning's service. We can be speaking words at each other. But if the invisible thought clouds could be seen by those around us, uh, they would reveal that uh, we're actually thinking about completely different things than what it is we're saying to each other. But, But when we engage in conversation, your words hit me and my words hit you, and there's a transaction there. Meditation is a transaction. Later today, not now, later today, go to BibleGateway.com, look for the scripture engagement icon on the main page, click it, and you'll learn a variety of helpful ways to engage deeply with the Bible. The Scotsman uh, Alexander McLaren spoke 
to the importance of meditating on Scripture. This was over 100 years ago, but I'm always amazed every time I look at this um, statement of McLaren's how much more poignant it is as time goes by. Here, McLaren. The habit, the habit of patient, protracted brooding on the revelation of God's will needs to be cultivated. Now, here's the line that especially affects me. Men live meanly because they live so fast. I'm going to say that again. Men live meanly because they live so fast. Religion lacks depth and volume because it is not fed by hidden springs. Earlier this week, I challenged the graduating uh, seniors here at Grace toward this end by using the words of uh, the Puritan Matthew Henry, who challenged his audience uh, with these words uh, over 300 years ago. Here, Here, Matthew Henry. Make the Bible your study. There's no knowledge which I am more desirous to increase in than that. Men get wisdom by books, but wisdom towards God is to be gotten out of God's book, and that by digging. Most men do but walk over the surface of it and pick up here and there a flower. Few dig into it. So the blessed man, the blessed woman, is one who not only delights in God's word, but digs into it. I hope you have a trowel next to the chair in which you read your Bible because it's there to dig in to God's word. So the first thing for which a blessed man is known is what he doesn't do. Then he is known for what he does do. And then the third thing for which he is known is what he becomes. And verse number three reveals that he becomes like a tree. Not a volunteer tree that's planted from a seed by wind or waste that grows up or out or not at all as volunteer trees are wont to do, but this is a tree planted, planted by a gardener, planted by a rancher in a well-watered location that's, that's nourished and causes the tree to flourish now and for years and years and years and years on end. There's a great little passage in Psalm 92, beginning in verse 12 and going through verses 14 and 15 that's summed up in these words from that passage. The righteous still bear fruit in old age. They stay fresh and green. Isn't that beautiful? Reminds me of the Valencia orange tree that we have in our backyard, which is likely over 100 years old, and has survived and even thrived through multiple droughts because of thoughtful planting and ongoing care. It also reminds me of a a man uh, at the church in which I grew up here in La Mirada who's just a little younger than that orange tree, has been on hospice care for months and still attends church and is encouraging people from God's word. It's amazing. He'll be there this morning. Julio Heron said that he would, she would say hello to him for us. It's amazing. But according to Psalm 1, it's to be expected. 
So that's the man. That's the woman who is blessed by God here in Psalm 1. And that first person stands in contrast to the second person, the, the wicked person. And we notice in verse 4, upon being introduced to this one, the economy with which he, with which they are dispensed. Five words. The wicked are not so. In other words, everything that's true of the blessed man, his temperance, his virtue, his prosperity, not true of the wicked man. All that, nothing. Entirely dismissed with one backhanded swipe. Now, there are other psalms in which we're told that the wicked prosper for a time. But here in Psalm 1, we're taught that in the big scheme, they have neither any more substance nor significance than chaff. Now, growing up in Southern California, I, and growing up in the church, and having been taught the Bible, I'd heard of chaff, and I understood in principle what chaff is, but I didn't really understand chaff until living in the rural Midwest. Uh, chaff, as you probably know, is, is the skin or the husk on the outside of a piece of grain or a soybean that's separated from that at harvest time. And it's weightless and it's useless and it is highly annoying. What do I mean by that? Well, the soccer fields on which my daughters grew up playing each autumn were really uh, emblematic of, of many soccer fields in rural America. They are carved out of farmland, which means that they're, they're surrounded on at least two sides by either corns, uh, corn or beans or, or some other crop. Corn and beans were the big ones where we lived. Well, one day my oldest daughter, Margaret, she's playing in a big game. It might have been a championship game. It also happens to be the same day that the farmer whose fields are attached to that soccer pitch decides he's going to harvest his soybeans. And so I remember watching him going up and down the rows with his giant combine and the beans being dropped in the bin and the chaff being blown out of the back end of that big old machine. And when he'd come to the end of a row that touched the soccer field, he'd turn the combine around, and these girls out on the soccer field were just showered with chaff. And I can remember them running up and down, blinking their eyes, and blowing like that, brushing off their uniforms. That's all chaff is good for, and it's not even good. What a contrast to the blessed man who is like a life-giving tree. In verse 5, the psalm begins coming to an end by addressing the fate of the wicked man. And there's an interesting uh, comparison here. Just take a look again at verses 1 through 3 where the blessed man is known for what he did not do in life. That is stand with the wicked. As compared to the wicked man in verse 5, who's known for what he cannot do in death, which is stand, neither in the judgment nor in the congregation of the righteous. So the wicked get what they deserve. It may seem like a long time in coming right now, but it does come. And it's something from which they can never escape. Isaiah 2, verses 12 
through 21. Finally, we get to verse 6, uh, the final verse in this psalm, very brief introduction to the one who is presiding over the whole thing, the one who is blessing and prospering and judging in this passage. And he is the Lord. You see him there. He's intimately and carefully knowing the way of the righteous while the way of the wicked is left unprotected and finally destroyed. So that's Psalm 1. Clear, concise, and compelling. And it's that compelling part that makes me nervous. It makes me nervous because it, it, it flows out of two chilling questions that come to mind as I ask myself, am I the blessed man or am I the wicked man? Question number one is this. Um, where am I in this psalm? See, the, the temptation in preaching this psalm is to moralize it. What do I mean by that? Well, what, what's, what's the bottom line question for today? It's, it's between the blessed man and the wicked man, which one are you? So it's tempting for me to say, well, you're obviously not wicked because you're sitting here in church uh, listening to this sermon, singing, praying, which means you must be the blessed man. So, hey, keep at it, do better, pull up those bootstraps, we're all in this thing, you got it. And in aspirational terms, we, we want to be the blessed man. That's, that's the, the profile for which we're striving. But take a look at that profile. The blessed man never walks in the counsel of the wicked. He never stands in the way of sinners, and he never sits in the seat of scoffers. Never. Never. And brothers and sisters, that's not me. That's not me in the least. In fact, at some level, I would imagine that all of us here, even since walking into this room at the beginning of the hour, have violated God's word in some way. And so I, you know, it makes me want to reach for my handkerchief and uh, dab my brow because I'm getting a little nervous here. I can feel the beads of perspiration uh, forming on my upper lip. Notice what he always does. He always delights in God's word. He always meditates on God's word. That's not me either. There are mornings that I don't sit down and read and reflect on God's word like I know I should do. And I do it without reason. So all of this leads to a second chilling question. And that is this. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? I mean, on the one hand, he must be tremendously attractive. I'd like to see him. I'd like to meet him. I mean, a guy like this, wow. 
I, I lived with the nicest guy in the world, Steve Johnson. We lived from 1988 to 1991 together. I've seen his highs and lows. None of you are any nicer than Steve Johnson. This guy looks like he might be nicer than Steve. He looks like he's definitely nicer than Steve Johnson. Who is this guy? He must be tremendously attractive. But on the other hand, I find him tremendously frightful. Tremendously holy. Tremendously other. Tremendously unlike me. Notice he's not any man. Passage doesn't read, blessed is a man. Rather, the passage reads, blessed is the man, a certain man. And there's only one man who knew and did this psalm, and that's the God-man, Jesus Christ. And why, after he rose from the dead, he said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, me, Jesus, in, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled, including the profile of the blessed man. So here's the bottom line. This is what it all comes to. First, if you think you're the blessed man in this passage because of all your effort to be good, well, then you need to think again because that's not an option that is given to us here in this passage. But, but, if you think you're the blessed man because you know you're really the wicked man and you've hidden yourself in the person and the work of the one who fulfilled this profile, the truly blessed man, Jesus Christ, then you are the one on whom the Lord keeps his eye now and forevermore. Bow your heads with me. And let's think about a couple more questions as we come to a close. So, who are you? Are you the blessed man or are you the wicked man? Are you aspiring to the profile of the blessed man by way of of religious activity and good works? or faith and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If it's the religion and the good works, and you've got to cast those off and put on Christ. And here's another question. Do you really believe, I mean, do you really believe that the way of the wicked will perish. Do you believe that? The late Art Johnston once said, if you do, or if you did believe that, your lifestyle would be a lot different than it is right now. So, what's one thing you can change this week that will give the perishing around you 
at home, your neighborhood, at work? What's one thing you can change this week that will give the perishing hope, even if they don't realize at this moment that they're in peril? Lord, help us this morning to answer these two questions. And as we do, may the clarity of our teaching, may may the passion of our praying as persons and as a people, may, may the effect of our gospel proclamation here and around the world be increased to your glory, we pray. In the name of the blessed man, Jesus Christ, amen.